Jack Daniels presents This Life Ain't For Everybody is back. And on this episode, host Chad Belding is joined by legendary college baseball coach Fred Dallimore. And they have home field advantage as they talk America's favorite pastime. How would you describe your coaching career as far as it pertained to your relationship with your players? Loyalty is the biggest asset you can have as a person. And when you're working for somebody else, your loyalty has to be total to that person. Coach Dallimore is one of the winningest coaches in college baseball history and led UNLV for 23 seasons. It was time for me to move on. They said, well, why are you going back home? I said, well, number one, you guys are screwed on my hunting and fishing. Besides, I didn't get married to that cute little blonde I'm married to until I see her two times in nine months. Pull up a bar stool and pour yourself some old number seven Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey as we dive deep into the dugout with Chad Belding and Coach Fred Delamore. Let's play ball. What are you going to do with all this stuff? What stuff? You're out of space. Always building. I'm building a place in Arkansas, looking for a place in Tennessee, looking for a place in Wyoming. I'm going to have little lodges, little hunt camps, barnuminiums, houses, you know, and then I'm, I have all this stuff, you know, collecting it and it'll be distributed throughout all those places, you know, little mini museums of memorabilia. Okay. And then if I make it to your age, then... I'll hand some of it down if anybody ever wants it. No, I don't shit. No, nobody wants anything of mine. Why? <laughs> what are they going to do with this it? This stuff's cool. This old UNLV baseball media yeah. guides, Matt Williams on them, Bo Ringer, freaking Donovan Osborne. Do you know um, Corky Gowans? Corky who? Cor- I think his name's Gowans. He he was the uh, he ran the cement plant for uh, for the big conduit. Uh, I don't I don't think I know. He, he was a catcher at, at UNR. Corky Miller, another one. Yeah, it was Corky before. Miller was a catcher at UNR that went to the Cincinnati Reds organization. This is when uh, his dad w- was crippled in a wheelchair, and his dad was popping off to my team, and Corky was behind the plate. One of my guys said, "Hey, old man, why don't you run that thing through a car wash?" <laughs> <laughs> oh God! And the br- the benches emptied. They did. Oh yeah. <laughs> You were kind of known for talking smack, though, weren't you, as a coach? No, no. I was pretty... To umpires, you did, for sure. What did I do with my phone? To umpires, you talked a lot of smack, didn't you? Yeah, I was on those umpires pretty pretty tough. It ran on my family. My dad was a... My dad was a... I want to turn my phone off so it doesn't go off during a broadcast. Does your phone ring a lot? Uh Huh? You get a lot of calls from people? Yeah, I get quite a few for an old retired guy. Staying active. Uh, Alice came home last night. She drove. She left Vegas at uh, two o'clock yesterday afternoon. She got in about eight thirty last night. Drove by herself. Yeah. Dang. Why didn't she fly? She had to have wheels when she was down there. Yeah. Wheels, and you know she can take more clothes, more stuff because she was there two weeks this this time, and she's usually there three. Does she have any updates? I was on Kimmy. Bryce wife's not doing real well. Is it getting worse? Well, she's not, you know, it's terminal. She could go any minute. You know, she's- How old is she? 48. Fucking brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. But Brian, uh, Brian and his mom, they're going to handle her till her death. How are her spirit, Kimmy's spirits? Well, Mandy just graduated, finished her last semester up at Rocky Mountain in Montana, or uh, Wyoming. And uh, Mel, the second daughter, she's going to school over in St. George- at uh, at University, uh, Utah Tech. And Brady, he's going to high school in uh, Vegas. 
Palo Verde. Brady's got a good-looking girlfriend. Does he? <laughs> oh, yeah. He's got he's got a little stud baseball player, isn't he? he he's got a chance to be in a first-round draft pick. What what year is he in high school? Junior. He's got a chance to be a first-round draft pick out of high school. Next year, yeah. What position? Catcher. 6'4", 220. 6'4", 220. The hell did he get that size from? How big's Brian? Well, Kimmy's on Kimmy's side of the family, there's uh, some height. She had an uncle that was 6'6", six, six, and one was 6'9". And <clears throat> Kimmy's dad's about six feet, 5'11". So six it comes feet. from her side of the family. Yeah. Because your oh, dad yeah. wasn't tall. No, we were all sandblowers. So every time we farted, we blew sand in our shoes. <laughs> so, I mean, no. <laughs> yeah. Bri- How tall is Brian? Brian's six foot. Brian's six one. So he was the tallest in your family, huh? He's not quite six one. He's like six. He still tells everybody six one, but he- I said, no, you're not. You're six feet, a half inch. <laughs> it's six one in spikes. Is Alice's family got some height? No. Where'd Brian get the height? You know, I don't think six feet is a very good height. Well, shit, then I'm really screwed because I'm 5'10". Yeah, you're like me. Did you watch the World Series? I watched parts of it. Great World Series. I didn't want it to end. Hey, listen to this. You remember a kid that pit played at Carson, Dave? Oh, shit, he played, he, he played for, pitched for me one year. But he, he just got a World Series ring. Really? He was the bullpen coach for Texas. Really? Yeah. He played for Mac, and I recruited him out of Carson. Can't, can't remember his last name now. Because Mike Maddox is the pitching coach. Bochy's the manager. Right. Yeah. Who's the bullpen coach for the Texas Rangers? Brett Hayes? He might not be the coach. He's, he's McNutt told me yesterday when I called Ronnie McNutt. <clears throat> Ronnie's McNutt? up in, in Idaho. Is he living in Idaho full-time now? Yeah. Sold everything in Carson. Terry's from Idaho. Yeah. What's TC doing? RC. RC, he went with him. Oh, he's up there? Yeah. How's he doing? He's doing good. He loves it. RC, I used to love listening to him cheer at baseball games. Put 30 years at uh, high school cleaning the as a janitor. Did he? Oh, yeah. He's got great retirement. That's awesome. And Terry's Terry's family had money because her dad was a car dealer. This magazine you brought for me to look at? Says all hands at third base, Matt Williams. This is from like 1990. So this was pre-strike. Um, God, look how young Dusty Dusty Baker was. I didn't. I've never. I haven't even read the article. I just ran across it when I was going when I was going through some baseball stuff, and I had a couple extras. So I said, hey, "I'll just give them to you." Did Matty have great hands in college? Oh yeah, yeah, he did. But he was a rail. When Matty came play for us, he was 170 pounds. His goal was to get to 170. We sent him home for Christmas vacation. From when he entered school the first semester, he went home when over 190. Just on the weights? Yeah, weights, diet. Right. We're not going to tell we got anybody any juice or anything. but People didn't do juice in UNLV baseball, did they? You're not supposed to. Did you know it was going around if it was? Philippi was our strength coach, so... <laughs> And then Bink. Were you there with John Binkowski and Mark Phillippe, yeah. Chicago. But uh, when Maddie was there, Tim was the the, uh, strength coach. Tim. uh, I remember hearing about him. But yeah, I was there with Phillippe. He he won the USA World's Strongest Man twice. Yep. For America. His biggest problem was he was short on one end. You know, he was was only like 5'10". Yeah. And all the guys that could get those stones and get them up on the shelf. Yeah, they were tall. Yeah, they would use their chest. Uh, and then roll them back Mark, under. Mark had to get it up and then push it up and then put it on the thing. Yeah. 
And he was strong. Though. He was pretty strong though. I remember when it was when he would do chest day, he'd take like 30 minutes to put that shirt on. He'd have to have people helping him pull it down. <laughs> then he'd do one rep and then pull it right off. What what do you think it was about your personality and umpires? You you learned it with your dad about Oh yeah, my man, dad. when I was playing for you, that was my favorite thing was to hear you get into the umpires. My my dad was he was a fan pleaser. He he didn't have anything against the umpires at all, but boy, he was his favorite sayings were shake yourself, you blind Tom. You're so blood you're so brutal you couldn't call hogs. <laughs> <laughs> He just wanted the other people in the stands to laugh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He sat in the stands, and we were playing Sac State one year, though, and he – that was years ago, and they, when I played. That was my last year. And uh, Swede Matheson, Roddy Matheson was our shortstop, and, you know, we had a lot of local guys that played at Reno. We had, good, we had a good club, and we're playing in Sac State. And those days, you could walk right up and get right behind the – they had, like, a recreation batting screen. It came up straight, and then it had a thing over the hood. If the ball hit, it was a foul ball on a pop-up. <laughs> so my dad and Swede Masson, I don't know if you ever remember Swede Masson. He owned – I don't. He was a catering – had a big uh, big hall over by, off Sutro and 9th Street, inter- entertainment hall where people could come and have weddings, uh, parties. Well, <clears throat> he and my dad were behind the home plate. My dad was all over this umpire, and he, he came over. <laughs> said, time out. He said – I'm warning you. One more word out of you. He said, I'm throwing you out of the stadium. He goes, well, you better get some help, buddy. He said, I'm short. But he said, you're not tough enough to get me out of here. <laughs> so pretty soon they stopped the game again. He goes, no, I mean, get out of here. He said, you got to get all the way out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> and the, my play, my teammates, they were looking at, oh, Johnny D, he's got, he's getting into it with the umpires. Always did. But you did too. You would like in the – I don't know how many ejections you had in NCAA baseball, but you're the only manager I saw get thrown out before the game started. You did that when you were exchanging lineup cards. Yeah, I got shown. I got thrown out a few times at the in the lineup card exchange. <laughs> I just I say, hey, you know what? Can can you give me a definition of your strike zone so I can tell my team exactly where what your strike zone is? He goes, I don't have to tell you. I go, oh, well, what are you afraid of? I said. You're the only guy I ever know that had a flex zone. Is that included in your – he said, a what zone? A flex zone. I said, yeah. When we're, when we're hitting, you you widen it out. When they're hitting, you shrink it back up so everything's in the middle of the plate. He says, well, I don't think that's right. I said, well, I'll tell you right now, I've been in baseball longer than you've been alive. And I said, I'm going to tell you, there's two different distinct zones. And uh, – I think I got thrown out all three games at Reno that year. The guy said, hey, give me your lineup card. I said, no, I'm not going to give you my lineup card right now. I said, you and I are going to have a discussion. He said, "We're not talk- what, are we- what are we going to talk about? I said, well, let- let- let's talk about your strike zone again. He goes, no, we're not talking about my strike zone. I said, then you're not getting the lineup card. <laughs> you give me that lineup card. He said, or I'm throwing your butt out of here. I said, listen, I'm going to tell you, this is not going to be the first time that I got thrown out of a game before it even started. <laughs> so I said, you'll just be in the record books along with me. So I said, give me your strike zone. Give me your lineup card. I said, no, I'm not going to give it to you until you tell me your, what your strike zone is. You don't even know how wide the plate is. You don't even know what the hell you're doing here. So he goes, you're out of here. You didn't cuss at him or nothing? No. You're no. not dropping F-bombs every other word? I didn't, didn't bump him, didn't put my hands on him or nothing. But I, 
I tell you another guy I loved to play compete against Ed Chef when he was at uh, Ed Grand. Uh, no, up in uh, Idaho. Oh gosh, what was the name of the school? CSI at College Lewis, of Southern Idaho. Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark. Okay. Well, he picked up. <laughs> he picked up one of our umpires. He got tossed, and he grabbed him and he picked him up. And he was his feet were about this far off the ground. I think it might have been Frank Wilcox, little Frank. And he wouldn't let him down. <laughs> he said, "No, if I'm if I'm getting getting thrown out of this game, he says you're going with me." <laughs> he was walking around the infield. His feet were about that far off the ground. <laughs> and he said, "You already tossed me." He said, "So when we get close to the gate over there, he said I'm tossing you." <laughs> oh, you know what? I think you have to have some degree of having a good time while you're playing. Oh yeah, and. Uh, it's funny, though, how the rumors get around. One of my best friends ever, Ronnie Mouses, who we bought our uniforms through for Goodman's. You know, he was a, he'd handle all the, all the Dodgers and all the great teams in Southern California in college. Uh, Goodman's Sporting Goods, they were great. Our uniforms, they had the tackle, tackle twill across the front and everything, and everything was embroidered, stitched, and it was beautiful. And uh, Ronnie was umpire in UCLA, and he blew a call at first base, and I would Ryan was right in the dugout, right in the dugout at first base. UCLA had the third base side, and he blew the call. And I went out there. I mean, I got right into his face, you know. And he was a real big guy. He was probably about six three, probably two twenty five, two thirty. And we're chesting each other. And he goes, "You bump me one more time." He says, "I'm throwing you out of here." I said, "This will be the first time I've been thrown out, so go ahead. I am going to bump you." And he says, <laughs> "Boom!" I chested him. He said, "You're out of here." So I, t I told the bus driver, Harvey Ash was our bus driver. I don't know if Harvey was driving when you were playing, but uh, we pulled up there and umpire's locker room was on our wake. Uh, they had a little place for him to umpire that had a dress and a, and a toilet and everything there. And uh, we pull up the bus there and one of the young umpires looking out and he goes, Ronnie, the, that coach is coming out of the bus. He goes, Ronnie, the, that, he's coming over here. He's, he said, Man, he's ticked. I walked over to the dugout. I say, Ronnie saw me. He jumped up. He picked, put his arms around me. I put my arms around him. Uh, we were personal friends. My daughter lived at their house when she went to graduate school after uh, to uh, do her hospital work for being a physical therapist. And she she lived with Ronnie. And how I met Ronnie, he came to sell uniforms for Goodman's to our basketball. They did basketball and football, and they did all, all sports. And uh, he dealt with Tark, got the uniforms done. He said, God, that was real quick and easy, so I got time to kill. Let's go meet with the baseball guy. And I was a, that was my first year in coaching. I got the job in August. August. Now, they, Chubb Draculich told me, he said, okay, you got the job. Go out and recruit. Who in the heck are you going to recruit in August? School starts in September in about two weeks. And high school baseball has been over for two months. Yeah. Three months. I got in my car. I drove up to Medford. Uh, that's where I got those kids from out of Medford. Herb Pryor and uh, Mark Lewis. A lot of good, a lot of good kids. They played for Herb's brother Jack Summerball, so you knew they were. And then eventually, I hired Jack, and then I fired Jack in 1980 when we were uh, we were 56 and 10. Uh, our overall record ranked fourth in the country, and we got sent back to ORU to play in the in the collegiate. Uh, regional playoffs and uh, that was a great club boy I tell you what Kenny Elsie was a first round draft pick a right handed pitcher 
He pitched the first game, struck out 15 guys. Wow. Threw a lot of pitches, threw real hard, had good slider, good command. We get we play Cal Berkeley that in the in the tournament, all we had to do was win one out of two games. We swept Cal Berkeley that year at Cal Berkeley in their yard. They came back, we play them again in the regional playoffs. I can't pitch Elsie because he, he pitched the day before. Uh, two, you know, he had a day's rest and one day. And a power pitcher like that is going to be a high draft pick. I knew he was going to be in the first and second round. He was the first rounder. <clears throat> but he and his wife were married young, and they had a son that had a club hand. And she was constantly driving him to L.A. To, for surgeries. And uh, being a first-round draft pick, there's no way I was going to take it ever. I never overpitched the kid in my life, never. And uh, Jack Pryor, we're coming back. We got beat two out of three. We got beat by Cal two in a row to go to Omaha. It was a tough loss, boy. We all cried in that dugout. That, uh, it was just a bunch, a great bunch of guys and uh, good players. Out, outfield was Eddie Crow, Murphy. Oh, God. My Do you think baseball players today are as tough as they were back then? No, they're different. Uh, they're different. Watch the game today. Uh, values are different. You know, uh, I, I was a pretty disciplined guy. You know, I, I believe that, uh, you know, you had to be clean-shaven. You had to have your hair cut. You know, you had to have – uh, the hair above your ears and, and off the collar in your back. And when we went on a road trip and stuff, you weren't allowed to wear tennis shoes. Like, getting on the bus, you had a slacks, hard sole shoes, and a collared shirt. Now, once we got on the bus, you could take your clothes off, you could put your sweats on, you could go nude. I didn't give a crap. But uh, once we had a discipline set, uh, there was no flexibility on it. I can remember one time Pat Tiedemann was a good kid I got from Gary Ward when he had championship team at uh, Yavapai Junior College. We come to pick him up. He's got a jogging suit on to get on the bus. I say, hey, Pat, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm going to ride on the bus in comfort. I said, like you're not riding on the bus. Get out of here. <laughs> he said, what for? He said, I said, you know my dress code, right? You have to have hard soles, shoes, dress pants, collar shirt, and your hair cut and clean shaven. He goes, well, give me five minutes. I say, okay, you got five minutes. He came back in, he his pants, he buttoned up his shirt, getting on the bus, got on the bus just in time. I said, but I'm probably not going to play you this on this trip. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my life was so filled with, <clears throat> I tell everybody, it's hard to believe, as little as my salary was. I mean, hell, the most money I ever made at UNLV was 67500 my last year. Wow. And, uh, you know... <laughs> If my wife hadn't had a good job being a school teacher and administrator, we'd have been out of luck. And so as a consequence, we did well. We had no recruiting budget when I got there. First three years, my wife and I were there as a head coach. I put five years as an assistant. Then we did three years of recruiting out of our money, out of our pocket, our family money. Finally, we had our third child and and, uh, and Brian. And she said, Freddie, we gotta, you got to find a way to get more money from outside us, just not us. I'd drive all night, get a state car, drive all night, sleep in a cemetery. I got the funniest story. <clears throat> Rick Down and I, Rick played, Rick coached for me, you know, and he coached 17 years in the big leagues, and he was the hitting coach for the Yankees. He left me for the Angels. Then he got picked by the Yankees. He went with the Orioles, the Dodgers, uh, the Red Sox. Back to the Yankees, back to the Red Sox. He was one of the premier hitting coaches and, and was a hitting coach for the Orioles for Davey Johnson. But uh, Pat passed away here, I don't know, five or six years ago. 
he had a lot of health problems, but uh, was a great hitting coach. And uh, we were lucky to get guys like that. Well, he and I one time, we gave the team two days off until uh, we weren't going to play on the weekend. And uh, I say, let's see, I'll get a state car. Let's go and watch, watch uh, uh, Jimmy uh, a program up at Idaho, up at Twin. So we went up. <clears throat> we drove all day. We did a couple of illegal things. We had a couple of beers and <laughs> had a 12-pack in the car. We get pulled over by a, by a highway cop in Idaho. And he asked me, he says, where are you, where are you going? I said, uh, we're going up to Twin, watch, watch uh, Twin Falls play junior college. He said, well, you know, you're, you're going a little over the speed limit. And he said, plus, you know what, you and your buddy are drinking in those cans? He said, don't drink any more of it. He said, pour all those open ones you got out. And he says, I'm going to let you go this time. But he said, I'm going to call other cops ahead of you. We get there, pitch black. No motel reservations or nothing. It's probably 2 in the morning. We pull into a, what I thought was a city park. We wake up in the morning. I get in the back seat. I give Rick the front and wake up in the morning from a backhoe. And it's, it's about 15, 20 feet. They're digging a grave. We're in the middle of a cemetery in Twin Falls, Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you made your residence that night, a little sleep yeah. time in a cemetery. Yeah. But I mean, I had some, some great moments, uh, Chad, in, in coaching. I had a lot of great kids. I had, uh, I, I had good coaches. I only had one non-loyal coach, and that I said it was Jack Pryor. And when we come back out of uh, – we went to ORU to play the regional playoffs that year. And Cal was in it, ORU ourselves, and uh, I forget the other team. But uh, that was the year we were 56-10, and 10, pretty good year for college baseball. I refused to pitch Elsie, our number one pitcher, because he pitched the day before at one day's rest, struck out 15 guys through 100 pitches. And uh, we're coming down the escalator in uh, Las Vegas airport. And Dick Gregg, one of the sports writers, always met us at the airport. Hell, I think we only flew two or three times all the years I coached. Everything we did was bus. And uh, we're coming down the steps, and uh, Jack Pryor turns to Dick Gregg, and he says, hey, if I'd be the head coach, we'd be going to Omaha. And Dick said, oh, really? He said, why? What would you have done different? He said, oh, hell, I don't care about Elsie's future. I'd have pitched him. I'd have thrown him. He'd have pitched that game, and we'd have been going to Omaha. I said, well, Jack, loyalty is the biggest asset you can have as a person. And when you're working for somebody else, your loyalty has to be total to that person and the program and the university and the state of Nevada, and you're far from that. So I tell you, I'm going to give you 24 hours to give me your resignation or I'm going to fire you. So he came in. He said, what are you going to do without me? I said, well, you know what? Just a second. I picked up the phone, dialed Rick down. I said, hey, Rick. Rick had worked for me the year before and took a year off because he couldn't stand Jack Pryor either. And he says, and Jack was a good baseball guy, but his loyalty was terrible. And uh, I get Rick on the phone. Hey, say, Rick, this is Coach Dalimore. Where are you in LV? He says, yeah, Freddie, how you doing? I go, well, listen, are you tired of working on the strip as a security guard? I said, I got the head base, number one head base co- uh, baseball position for you as assistant coach. Would you be interested in taking it? And at that time, I, they were probably making about 40-some thousand bucks as an assistant. And I said, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get you pretty close to 50. He says, I'll take it. 
So then Jack comes in to, about uh, two years later. He's going through Vegas. He wants to stop by. And he said, you know, Freddie, what really hurt me the most was he said, you offered Jack Pryor $8,000 more than I was making. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's the price you pay for being disloyal. So Jack Pryor came in and said that, that you that you offered Downs at. Yeah. And I offered Rick, and he coached me seven years. He left me in January, went to work for the Angels. And those days, the Angels already had a coach. They had Moose Steubens, who was a triple-A coach for the Angels for a year. He was the third-base coach and the hitting coach. And uh, he wasn't a good hitting hitting guy at all. Was Rod Carew there, or was he still with Minnesota? And, you know, um, I think he was. Uh, you know, my years are all screwed up, Chad. But uh, Rick went there, and Davey Johnson says, you're going to be the hitting coach. He said, we're not hitting the ball good enough. And he said, and I'll just let Moose coach third base or first base. So that's how he got, became, and I say he was with the Angels two years. I went Davey out. Johnson was with the Angels then? Uh, Davey Johnson was the manager. Yeah. And then he moved on to Baltimore too? He got the Baltimore job, and he went to Baltimore. And then – Did he replace Earl Weaver there, or was Earl, Earl been gone for a while? They had um, – Shaw Walter? No, he was there after Davey Johnson. I, it wasn't uh, – wasn't Earl? It, it was. Earl was like you in the major leagues. He had some really good umpire experiences. He got tossed a lot. I saw him speak here one year at the UNR Bobby Dolan dinner. He's passed away now, I think. Earl has, but he spoke up here one year. Yeah. He was good. Hey, he was a great coach. I had three guys that I really like. I, I, I like the way Billy Martin handled himself. Cal Ripken's dad. Billy Ripken. No, uh, Cal. Cal Sr. That was one other guy. I can't think of his name right now, but uh, just the way they managed and they coached and they handled themselves. They were on umpires too. They just reinforced my philosophy on dealing with those umpires. What about when I was a freshman or sophomore? You filled up – uh, was it you that filled up that dugout with water when – when the team came in and something had happened at their yard and then they go to the first base dugout and we had cement dugouts and it was full of water so they all had to stand along the and you said a sprinkler broke or something <laughs> I don't forget it was the University of California Santa Barbara Santa Barbara UCSB and uh, Al Farrar was the coach he, he coached at Chico State for a while and he didn't care a lot for me when I was at Nevada Reno he was he was a little bit older than I was and uh, he got a head job at Chico State, and then he got the head job at Santa Barbara. We had, we had a little feud going between us, and, and uh, I didn't like the umpire situation that he always had when we were in, go play him on the road. We were the only team. It was a, the the Big West in those days was a California-based conference. We were the only team out of the state of Nevada, uh, out of the state of California, only team in Nevada. Playing and they didn't have New Mexico in there or, or any of them. Everybody was from California but us. And every place we went, California umpires, California umpires. And then they pushed a deal. When we got in the league, we had to take our umpires out of California. They didn't want our umpire. No, I said, no, no, no. No, we, we have a good umpiring crew here in Reno, you know, in Vegas rather. And uh, Freddie Atia, Johnny DeLuca, Bruce Bain. I mean, you know, Frank Wilcock. We, we had some good guys. And, uh, we went to Santa Barbara. We got Homer real bad. <clears throat> so I told uh, the coach there at Santa Barbara, I said, you know what? You might just get your butt kicked when you come to Vegas to play us. And uh, he parks the bus out there in left field, comes to the left field gate. The team walks right in front of our dugout in, th in third base. 
He makes a left-hand turn. He gets on a warning track. He goes all the way around the warning track to get to their dugout. So he didn't have to walk by you? Yeah. When he gets there, and by that time, one of the assistant coaches went over and told him, hey, that sprinkler in front stuck, stuck during the night. I said, your dugout's full of water. I mean, hey, we sprayed the walls and everything so it looked like the sprinkler went off. They had to move all their stuff out of the dugout, and they put it right on the other side of the fence, and they – they couldn't get in the dugout, and they had to get on the other side of the fence, come through that little cage where you went to to the bullpen. <laughs> yeah, it was a great. It was a great time. What time of the day did you do that in? We were. It was like on a Saturday. So you got there early and did it. Oh, we got there. I'd say, yeah, we we didn't get treated very fairly in in Santa Barbara, <laughs> so we're going to show them what it's like to get treated rough in Vegas. So yeah, we. Put that hose on there and sprayed everything down. <laughs> Put a bunch of paper in the in the drain. They didn't drain very good anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, we watched them. They were going, "What are we going to do?" They were going, "We can't get it. Where, where are we going to sit?" Well, I said, "Well, we took the uh, benches out of the bullpen. There were two two twelve foot benches, and we put them behind the fence for them to sit on." <laughs> Do you remember that what game it was when you climbed the light tower? Well, the the, the, the premier time when I climbed the light tower, <clears throat> every year we got invited to the Fresno Easter tournament. You know, Bobby Bennett and I were very close. He was he was a good baseball guy and a good coach and had a, a real class program. But they had that California umpire uh, syndrome also, you know. They wanted that. This was their hitting zone. This was our hitting zone. You know, there's a difference in the strike zone. Anything close or banged out – so I got tossed. The first night I got tossed, I went down to the bullpen and I said, so stay close to the phone because I'm going to be calling you on the bullpen phone. So we played Fresno State that night, <clears throat> a real close game. They, they had a big-time pitcher, and we had one guy who was really good. And uh, Bob meets with the umpires the next day, and he said, hey, when you told, tossed Freddie, he said, tonight – he said, tonight? The umpire said, tonight? He said, we haven't even started yet. He said, yeah, but when you toss him tonight, he can't go to that dugout down there. He ran the game all the way through that bullpen phone to the assistant coach. So, so this is this is Bob Bennett's guy saying this to the umpire yeah. when he's exchanging lineups? Yeah, because the umpire told me. He, already, he knew automatically you're getting ran again. I, he said, I, I know you're going to toss him tonight. He, he, he's, he's, Are you standing there or is Sosby? Souls was in the dugout. I was I was up for the lineup change. So he's talking about you, and you're standing right there. I got I heard it from Ronnie Mouses, who was part of that California Umpire Association. He said, "Yeah, ben, Bennett went down to the umpire's dressing room, and he said, "Hey, if Freddie gets tossed tonight, you got to run him out of, all the way out of the ballpark." He said he went to the bullpen last night and he ran the game. So I get tossed in the second game. Are you? Did you put catcher's gear on? Were you down there looking like a catcher? What were you doing? Because you did that at Arizona State one I year. I put my jacket on inside out, so it looked like it was gray, and everybody else had red on. So they didn't know it was me, and I said, put my hat on backwards. I never wore a hat backwards in my life. I was a pitcher. I always went the bill forward. <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was kind of hiding in there, you know. But, uh, the, so I get tossed the second night. All of a sudden, I start down the, the uh, warning track, going to the right field, and the umpire's going, Freddie, Freddie. See, and they all knew me by the first name because I'd been in the league quite a while. I said, Freddie, you, can, uh, you can't go to the dugout tonight. No, no. 
Bob Bennett doesn't want you in that dugout, in that bullpen. And I said, you ran the game, he said, all the way. He said, you got to throw him all the way out of the ballpark. So I, I walked down past first base, and I see that 375 sign in their power alley, and they got those erector set light towers, you know, not one single pole going up, but had all these angle irons going up and cross braces and everything. So the umpires are following me, and they're going, I could hear them. They go, man, this guy's crazy. This this guy is crazy. Where's he going? I get to the, to the fence. I jump up on that eight-foot fence, and I grab it. I pull myself up on the fence, and I'm sitting on top of it. I look down. Those three umpires are probably 20 feet away from me. And I look at them. I go, hey, guys, I'll see you after the game. So they start walking back. Instead of going the way they came, they walked right towards home plate. So all of a sudden, they had 5,000 fans there on the Easter tournament. They drew well in Fresno. And uh, I say, God, you know what? I think I can jump up and grab that first rail. All of a sudden, the fans see me above the eight-foot fence. They see my body going up the tower. And they all start, they all start yelling. And the umpires are going, what the hell's happening? Why, why is everybody making all this noise? And they turn around. They go, oh, my God. He's crazy. This guy is crazy. I got up in the light tower and watched the game. All of a sudden, this drunk comes out of the fan, out of the stands. He's got a paper napkin and a, and a felt marker. And he goes, hey, coach, coach, you got to get your butt down here. Get your butt down here. He goes, uh, I, gotta, I need your autograph. I said, hey, get out of here. Leave me alone. I say, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the game and I'm, I'm helping coach. He goes, no, you can't coach anymore. He said, you got your butt thrown out of the game, you jackass. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon he saw I wasn't going to come down because this is about the fifth inning. And I just sat up there and watched the game. Sos pulls the players up and he said, hey, any guy that hits Coach D in the light tower, he says, I'll give you 20 bucks. Little bomb. They were ball, yeah. Reed Peters and those guys, they were coming pretty close. Were they? Yeah, they hit some bombs. We we made a we made a run for the to win the game and and the Sosa had them jacked up higher a kite and uh, uh, one came pretty close at the time, but it was lower. I was up there. The light towers are pretty high in Fresno. They're old fashioned, but to tell you what, that was probably one of my highlights of getting tossed. That's Fred Dallimore. This life ain't for everybody. It's baseball. We're going to break here for a few commercials. Thank you all very much. Coach Fred Dallimore built more than one of the winningest careers in college baseball history. He built a family. Well, I think that's one of the most uh, rewarding things. At Christmas time, all the great kids we had that came through the program, we don't only get a Christmas card with a picture of their family. All of them include a one solid page letter. Jack Daniels, Traeger Grills, and Gator Coolers are proud to support this highlight of Coach Fred Dallimore. Chad and Coach Dallimore will return to the broadcast in just a moment. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. You know, we are a huge fan of Jack Daniels, not just their product, but their mission, their culture, Lynchburg, Tennessee, the people. And we want to introduce you to the Jack Daniels Single Barrel Program. Join us at jackdaniels.com and learn about the Single Barrel Program, visiting Lynchburg, Tennessee, participating in a barrel tasting, a whiskey tasting, picking your favorite flavor, whether it's the burn in your mouth, whether it's the maple, whether it's the different combination of flavors that you are going to experience in each of the distinct bottles of Jack Daniels Single Barrel, you're going to be able to choose the best one, your favorite one, and purchase that entire barrel. 
It all comes bottled in individual single barrel bottles. You get your own hanging name tag, brand tag, your logo on it. You can give them away as gifts. Go knock on the door of a landowner and say, thank you for letting me hunt your field. There's so many options with the Jack Daniels single barrel program. We're proud to be part of it. We have introduced it to so many of our friends and family across the country, whether it was at a business, whether it was at a duck lodge, whether it was at a conservation event. It is truly an awesome program. Learn more about it at jackdaniels.com. The single Single barrel program. We've been involved for the last five years. I'm looking at two of my barrels right now. We just got our 2023 barrel in the single barrel rye. Absolutely mesmerizing. My brother Clint's old fashions with it speak for themselves. It's the Jack Daniels single barrel program. Check it out. Learn about it. I hope you decide to visit Lynchburg, Tennessee and get your own barrel. Thank you very much. Looking for a high-quality truck accessory that's built to last? Look no further than Lear. With over 50 years of experience in the industry, these guys know what it takes to make your ride look and performance best. Whether you're looking for a fiberglass or aluminum cap, a hard or soft cover, or accessories to customize your truck, Lear's got you covered. Their products are made with only the best materials, and their innovative features provide added convenience and security for truck owners. Head over to Lear.com to explore their range of products and take your driving experience to the next level. Gator Coolers. The drinkware, the coolers, the 45, the 70, the 110, on wheels. Keep that meat fresh. Keep those drinks cold. Ice for days. The retention, the design, the attention to detail, just how cool they are aesthetically. It's just a great American brand out of the great state of Louisiana. The McGeehee Brothers, my boy Brian, they are kicking butt. The official cooler and drinkware of the Foul Life Television and the Foul Life Podcast. I can't say enough. I love opening a Gator cooler and seeing it full of our bounty. Wings on if we're traveling. Possession limits only, everything ethical, but I love eating wild game and I love making sure that it's fresh. And that's exactly what a gator cooler allows the hunter or fisher to do. I don't take it for granted. I travel with several of them in our trucks and trailers. We have snacks in them. We have drinks in them. They come with cutting boards. They do not leak. They do not allow air into it. Their design is absolutely perfect and they are reinventing the way that people take care of their food, their bounty, and they support Ducks Unlimited, California Waterfowl Association, so many conservation agencies agencies across the country. You can find them at the NWTF convention in Nashville, Tennessee this coming February 2024 as part of our booth. We don't go anywhere without Gator. They are cold-blooded down to the core, the official cooler of the Foul Life Television and the Foul Life Podcast. Get you a Gator for this season. I promise you it's going to keep your meat fresher. It's the bottom of the ninth and bases are loaded and Chad Belding and legendary college baseball coach Fred Dallimore are challenging the umpires as we rejoin the broadcast. What do you think it was about your personality and umpires? Because man, when I was playing for you, that was my favorite thing was to hear you get into the umpires. Yeah, I was on those umpires. Pretty tough. You're the only manager I saw get thrown out before the game started. So the umpires are following me and they're going, man, this guy's crazy. I got thrown out a few times that they're in the line of card exchange. Jack Daniels, American umpire. And beef, Corning Ford, and Oakley sunglasses would like for you to join us in paying tribute to an American baseball legend, Coach Fred Delamore. What the hell's happening? Why is everybody making all this noise? This guy is crazy. Now let's hit a dinger with Chad Belding and Coach Fred Delamore. You ran, had a lot of run-ins with the umpires, but what about the players that played for you? A lot of them stay in touch with you many years later. What kind of coach were you when it came? You're a father first. I know some coaches that I played for weren't fathers. 
there wasn't really that connection. Did you have a connection with the players you're with? You weren't afraid to get in their ass a little bit as far as being a father figure, but I mean, you would get into a player if he wasn't disciplined or if he wasn't respectful or yeah. things like that. What kind? Of, how would you describe your coaching career as far as it pertained to your relationship with your players? I didn't have a lot of rules. Other than you, you couldn't be late for weights. You know, we lifted four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, off Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We even lifted on game days. And uh, <clears throat> the penalty was so stiff, the NC2A now has a rule. You can't run guys, you can't punish them by running them. I think the players today, uh, I think the game has changed, but I, we had great players. But I went back to St. Louis and up through Oregon and recruited. And, uh, even the kids I got out of San Diego, Stevie Mosier, Loftus, uh, you know, we had a lot of great kids. I was firm but fair. And I didn't have a bunch of rules and regulations. Because you, you, you can't say, well, you, you can't drink alcohol. I mean, these guys are 21. They're away from home. They're off to college. You know, and that's part of college life is to go out and have, have a brewski. I told them, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money going down there and playing the felt, playing 21, because you'll end up playing 22 and you'll be broke. And so, you know, stay out of the casinos. But no one, they all went down there and, and tried gambling, you know, until they lost their meal money or rent money and, and so forth. But uh, I, I was pretty firm. I was fair, but firm. Uh, gave them the guidelines that we what we operated in, we functioned on, you know, be time, everything uh, timely on an orderly fashion. Get there early. Five minutes early for me is being on time. And uh, that was one thing I didn't flex on, you know, for the bus, for practice, for game day. When we said we we're going to be on the field at 1 o'clock, you know, most guys were there 15, 20 minutes early. But uh, – I had a dress code when we traveled. Uh, you know, I had uh, I had a haircut code. You know, you weren't allowed to have whiskers and everything all over your face, and, and uh, you weren't allowed to have an earring in your ear. I, I was from the old school, and they adhered to it. I didn't have a problem with it because they knew exactly where I stand. One day, we were out there. We had a kid out of Southern California. Souls they're all out in the right in uh, left field and they're doing calisthenics loosen up and they get on the ground they're laying down uh, putting one leg over there stretching their 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 legs and Souls walks over to this one guy he says Gazaz he said what are you doing with that earring in your ear he goes oh my gosh I forgot to take it out he said here why don't you take it in and give it to Coach Steve for his wife he goes no he says you don't you don't want to go in there with telling me that this earring is from one of your players for your wife to wear. <laughs> he said, take that earring off and give it to me. <laughs> he threw it on the grass. Afterwards, they're all out there looking in the grass. Metal detectors and shit. After the game, he thought it was a diamond. I, th I think it was just an artificial diamond myself. But, uh, yeah, I, I, we had – I'd say I was firm. Uh, I can remember I put a sign on one time and uh, – Doug Smith uh, went against the sign that I put on, told him to bunt. He didn't bunt, hit into a double play. And uh, he came back in the dugout, and he threw his helmet down. I said, Smitty, pick up that helmet. He goes, I'm not picking up that effing helmet. I said, Smitty, pick up that helmet. Now the, the rest of the team's going, Smitty, Doug, Doug, pick up the helmet. I ain't picking up that helmet. Give me a new right fielder, please, for next inning. <laughs> he was done. He didn't play for two weeks. One of the better players. That was a great team. We, we, that one year we were in our 50s, and next year we were like 46 and 13. 
uh, you know, we had, we had good, we had a good club. I never had another kid throw the helmet. Two things you had to do. If you struck out and adversity at the plate, you came down, you could put your bat in a rack, you can put a little force on it, but your helmet, you had to fit in that little square. And guys would come in and they'd try to jam it in there and hit the edge and it'd fall on the floor. They'd pick it up and put it in there nice and gentle. But I always sat right by the bat rack and the helmet rack in the dugout, which you're aware of, right? Yeah. And there was always... 15 feet between me and the team. And the team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody wanted to get yeah. close. Yeah, it was great. But, you know, Chad, we had so many great players. Like, you know, I was fortunate enough, I had uh, 22 guys. We never got a first-round draft pick. We never got a second round. We were lucky to get inside the 10, 15 mark. We took guys that, that loved the game, bought into our philosophy, personal sacrifice, commitment, team player, uh, you know, we all do the same what thing. Where did Maddie go in the draft? Maddie out of, out of high school is like a 17th or 15th round because he told me he's going to college. And there were a lot of schools that wanted Maddie, but Ronnie McNutt kind of helped me get uh, get Maddie. But he was a first round. Was he a first rounder out of UNLV? Yeah. So when was the first? The, you, you just said that you never had a first round draft pick, but you oh, had I mean, several. When, when recruiting him. Oh, recruiting him. Yeah, recruiting him, no. You mean guys that were coming out of high school that you were guys trying that were to get coming to come out of high school? Guys that were coming out of JC, we 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 never had a draft that was inside the 10, 10 rounds. And back in those days, it was like a laundry list. You know, after they had fifty rounds, you know. So there were a lot of players that got drafted that probably shouldn't have been drafted. They they turned out to be a good college baseball player. In nineteen ninety three, when I came there, that was the year that it happened or maybe the year before the NCAA outlawed tobacco, chewing tobacco, everybody in the major leagues chews. I mean, they were back then. I mean, it was everywhere. I mean, there was free cans of dip in every dugout in the major leagues college before that. Um, it's not a cool habit. I mean, it's not, it's it like, like <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's a habit that you still do it in your seventies, but you hit it from umpires all the time back in the day when they outlawed an NCAA because when you started coaching, it was legal. Yeah. It wasn't until the mid-90s when I was there that that they outlawed it. They outlawed but coaches it. couldn't chew it either, not just players. It couldn't be on the field, right? No. But you kept doing it. I never spit. <laughs> that was the secret. I remember when you'd have it in your stirrup sock because Alice <laughs> didn't like you doing it either. No, no. She, she, she didn't care for it either, y even today. Have you chewed ever since you retired too? Yeah, I, I go fishing with my pastor. He chews that uh, cherry flavored. Uh, it's like candy. It's like eating cotton candy. <laughs> you're Copenhagen only. Yeah, oh yeah. If you're gonna fly, might as well go first class. So, <laughs> so you, it's never messed with you, huh? It's never messed with you. No, never did. But you kept chewing in college when you when you were chewing, and you were infamous for. You took the dip can out of here. You were ripping our ass one day down the right field line, and you took the can out. We were on a road on a road game, and you lined it up. If you put your index finger and your thumb together, if you can't see me, but you lined Copenhagen snuff up along your fingers, snooze. and everybody's watching you, and you snorted it. Yeah, snooze. You go. Yeah, but snooze was a snooze, but you did it with it Copenhagen. Was it was fine grain. That's different between Dude, the snooze was like raspberry flavored and peach, but you did the real thing, real Copenhagen, right? And it was made for that. And that's what I was went from Levi Garrett. Oh, I can't remember all the names because it's been so many years since I chewed that leaf stuff. 
uh, Redman, Levi Garrett, and then Copenhagen got real popular. And you, you could get a good buzz off of, uh, of particularly if you snorted it, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you a great story. Oh, God, the chew, man, the freaking chew. Ray, Ray Perry was one of the most favorite guys that I ever coached. You know, he was a local kid out of Rancho High School, a ragtag guy, you know, come from a poor family, just the type of guy you fell in love with. So the deal on the team was come up with who could come up with the most unique style of dip. Because they knew that, hey, I chewed up a dip on this side, that side. I never chewed down in my lower, you know, and I snorted it. Well, Ray Perry and the team, they got together. And those days I was chewing uh, leaf also, <laughs> but at Copenhagen. But uh, Ray Perry comes over and he says, um, hey, coach, I think I got you beat today. He said, I got Redman in the right. I got Levi Garrett in the left. I got Skull in the bottom, and I got Copenhagen in the top. And I said, oh, you think that's pretty good, huh? I said, why don't you come back and see me in about 10 minutes? Let me see how you're doing. So he came back, and he said, uh, hey, coach, the question isn't how am I doing. He said, how are you doing? I had loaded up, and I got a big – I put some snooze <laughs> – and, you know, it kind of stimulated your uh, your sinuses, you know. Ray Perry's up on the on the dugout step and showing me how good he was doing. He said, look, I got a grasshopper. He said, I got Copenhagen, Levi Garrett, Skull, and a grasshopper. He pulls his lip down <laughs> like that. I said, well, hell, that's nothing. I went up there. I stepped on, he's, he's on the top step of the dugout, and his feet are like this. And I knew that this was just going to be a big load of snot and coming out of I went, and blew it on the top of his shoes. <laughs> he takes off out of the dugout. He goes down the right he field line. puking. And he's puking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. The, player, the players thought it was funnier than hell. I thought that was funny when you would start getting those snot bubbles. They would be all black after you snorted some of that shit. Yeah. Hey, you know what? It's not good for you. It was part of baseball in those days. And. I think players are, are smarter, they're more health-wise, they eat better. I don't think anybody ever worked harder than we did. That's one thing I, I take a lot of pride in in the all the years that I coached. Our goal is to make a player the best player that he's possible to become. And all we're there to do is assist him do that. Just had a lot of great kids. And when you, as I look back on the 23 years head coach, I had 22 guys playing the big leagues. 22 guys That's awesome. that played for me that I recruited playing the big leagues. And it's a pretty good some pretty good people. I mean, some guy I didn't have all of them all the time for the for the whole career, but when well, you can have guys like hey, Matty Williams, I had Cecil Fielder, I had both Stoudemire brothers, you know, Mel and Todd. I had Bowringer, Brian Bowringer. Of those 22 guys that played in the big leagues, 20 of them were pitchers. Really? Of them were pitchers. Only had two position players. Matt Williams and Cecil Fielder. Rest for pitchers. Well, that was your specialty was pitching. No, I signed. He played for Souls. Played center field. He played for uh, Cincinnati. This is a funny story. I could. I got to get this for you. I, I got to get his name first because I, I. You know when you get. I'm pushing eighty now. You know. I yeah. just had my 79th birthday last month. Looking good. Let me see. So that would have been Cincinnati. Ludwig. Yeah. Yeah. I had his brother pitch for me. And then it, what, the outfielder. Yeah, I remember Ludwig. Okay. Was he a Reno kid? Vegas. No, but was he front? Where did he play high school ball at? 
Vegas too? But here's his, his brother played in Vegas too. But his brother, I tried recruiting out of high school, and he went to Cal. So he played three years at Cal. And I said, man, you're six five. You got great velocity, and you you only got you only pitched thirty three innings this last year. He came to me and he asked me to during the summer. He said, "Will you work with me?" I hear that you're a very solid pitching guy. He said, "Will you work with me at your ballpark? Can I bring a catcher and you work with us?" So I said, "Yeah, sure." So he came there, and all of a sudden he gives up going to Cal. He's wearing a Rebel uniform. Right. I said, I'll guarantee you, you'll be a starter. You'll start one or two games a week playing for me. So he ended up playing for me. He ended up playing in the big leagues for, I think, seven years as a pitcher. Pitcher of the Mets. Uh, bounce, bounce around a little bit. But you, <laughs> guys like Joe Baver. Stud. This is a rarity. I was in St. Louis, and I had four pitchers on one staff. Four pitchers pitched for St. Louis. I might have had five. I think I can name them. Donovan. Donovan Osborne. Stottlemyre. Stottlemyre. T.J. Matthews. Matthews, yeah. No, it wasn't Boray. I, I can't I can't remember. I, I, I got a picture of them. So four or five pitchers on the big leagues for the Cardinals. Same staff, bullpen and rotation. If I look at those books, I could get the names, but I can't uh, off the top of my head. Uh, once we get talking about it, it'll come to me. This is what happens when you get old and you've been snuff snooze all your life. And Coors Light. Don't forget about the Coors oh, yeah. Light, oh, Coach. Coors Light. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You always had Coors Light on the bus trips. We always had uh, two of the largest coolers you could get with 10 cases of beer in them. I remember when we were at Arizona State and you had me and Soli carry them. We had cases in a bag, equipment bags. Like there was baseball gear in there and it was all beer. We were like, how is this thing so freaking heavy? What about Tarkanian? Did you become good friends with Jerry Tarkanian? Because he, back in like 87, 88, 89, they win the national title in 89 and 90. They're right there with Duke. Christian Leitner hits the shot. But it was Larry Johnson, Anderson Hunt, Greg Anthony, George Ackles, Stacey Ogman, Larry Johnson. I think I said Larry Johnson. Um, Danny Tarkanian. But they win the national title in 89. They were called the running rebels. You were the hustling rebels with the baseball. Was Tarkanian a good guy? Yeah, Jerry was a great guy. But we did have one run-in. He and I did have one run-in. I'll, I'll cover you that. But they called themselves the running rebels. We called the baseball team the hustling rebels. Because we hustled on the diamond – those guys were running around all around campus trying to make sure the guys were making the grades. So we, we that name, they deserve that name. And we deserved Hustling Rebels because we played hard. Yeah. Then Tark went on vacation and he had forgot he set up disappointment with this uh, vitamin company. So the guy comes to town and the secretary tells him that Jerry's out of town. And he goes, well, he must have forgot about the meeting. So he said, well, I'm here. I said, I'll, I'll talk to some other coaches. I was the only coach in the office. This guy comes walking up there, and, he's, and he, he gets – we get involved in a real good conversation. He, he looks at my record through all the years I was in Vegas, and he said, um, you know, I said, how would you like to have your baseball team on this program? So I said, well, that would be a big asset. So I got a year's worth of vitamins free, no charge. And they came shipped to the university every month. They gave us a whole brand new order. Well, Tark thought I took his vitamins because the guy never came back to meet with him. So we're walking down the hall one day, one day and, he, and uh, the basketball team always practiced in the North Gym. 
And I'm walking from the south gym all the way up to the hallway, and Jerry Sharkanian, he came down to my office the day before, and he says, I think that was the most coward thing that you took our vitamins from the basketball team after. We had all this national recognition, and that vitamin company would have done a lot better with our project and all this stuff. I said, you know, Jerry, you see that threshold on that st- that door right there? You cross that door, you're in my territory. I'm going to bounce you off the turf. <laughs> He turned white as a sheet, walked down to his office. So one day we're coming from the South Gym to the North Gym, like I started with this story. And he walks right by me. And for weeks, he would just look the other way, wouldn't talk or nothing. So one day he came into my office. He says, you know, Freddie, he said, I owe you the biggest apology. He says, of anybody I've ever apologized to, he says, you had every right for your team to get those vitamins. He said, I had enough money in our program. We could have bought vitamins from anybody and got a deal on them. But he says, I was happy that you got the vitamins. And he said, I just want to apologize that I was totally wrong. Because the guy told me, he says, I offered him. I didn't say, well, why don't you give us basketball advice? He offered them to our team because we had we had a pretty, pretty reputable program. Yeah. You know, we were, we were competitive in the national level. We were competitive in the league. Uh, I, I like what Jerry stood for. He was... They were like 23 and zero, undefeated. There were only three people ever got to go in the locker room. The two team doctors, the team, the trainers, the coaches, the team trainer, (laughs) the two team doctors, Dr. Armour and uh, uh, Gary Marone. I thought, here's a great time. After the game's over, they got beat. I said, this will be a great learning experience for me. Marone said, Freddie, why don't you come in the locker room with us? So I kind of got behind him and Doc, Doc Armour. We walked in there. Guys had the towels over. This is their first loss. Now, they might have been 25 and 1. They had towels over their head. They're kind of feeling sorry for themselves. and Everything's quiet in there. Doc Armour and Maroon and I, we're we're way in the back where he can't see us. All of a sudden, Jerry jumps off the seat where he was, and he takes his fist and he bangs it into the chalkboard. And he said, damn it, I don't know about you bastards, but I'm tired of losing. They're 25 and 1. Maroon looked at me and he says, Freddie, you guys just lost three straight to Arizona State this weekend. <laughs> weekend. He said, how that make you feel? Tark hated losing. You hated losing, though, too. Do you, was Tark shady at all? Did they? Was there some, like, Vegas underground stuff going on to get these recruits and, and do the title? I mean, I know you probably can't talk about it, but was was he, was he the NCAA on him at all? Well, I, I think it was worse when John Bear was the coach. John Bear, yeah. the basketball coach uh, after Roland Todd. Um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, the basketball player. He's about 6'10", a big-time player. <clears throat> I would say Baker, Jimmy Baker, but I, I, the name's not really – first name's not right, but Baker. So John Bear makes a deal with a car dealer there. He gets him a gold convertible Lincoln Continental <laughs> to drive. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't too conspicuous. You know? Yeah. Everybody. Now, whatever Tark did for his players uh, – I'll never know how they got a car or if they got a car afterwards. I didn't care, but uh, I'm pretty sure there was some deals made. Cause 
Jerry came to me one time. I said, Jerry, why do you always take so many guys that played their freshman year at other schools? He said, well, coach, he said, listen, that first year, he said, by the time they went there, he said, now they're coming here. They already had the car deal for them, and so they just brought it with them to Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> so now you got these athletes that can get these NIL deals. Do you think you'd be able to coach college athletes that were getting these big-time contracts and you know marketing deals and promotional deals? They're, they're, back when we played, you weren't allowed to have a side job when you were on scholarship. You couldn't, you couldn't take gifts. You couldn't get anything. No, you could get a job on your own, but the coaching staff in the university couldn't do anything for you other than if we could employ our players as long as it was through the university. Parking attendance, um, you know, out at the Silver Bowl, at the Thomas and Mac. Uh, <clears throat> as long as it came from the university, it was legal. And as long as it didn't go over the amount allotted, we never had anybody ever get a full ride. I never had a full ride player in my life. I had two guys, Cecil Fielder and Bip Roberts. Both guys played in the big leagues. Yep. <clears throat> Great coaching careers. And then Bip was a big-time uh a color guy, an announcer for the Giants after the game uh, for years. Uh, <clears throat> I got him because his brother, or his uncle rather, uh, Roy Shivers, his sister was his, uh, his mom. And so he went in to come play for us for a year, but he, he didn't like the way I handled the player. He didn't like the, the firm, stiff, practice hard, game speed, uh, <clears throat> when you're on the field and you got a chance to move around, you don't walk or feel sorry for yourself. You kick yourself in the fanny, pick yourself up, you get out to where you're going to play. So he only lasted a year. He went home, in fact, in mid-year. Bip Roberts did. He went back, played uh, played one year of um, J.C. ball, and then was a real high draft pick. I don't know what round he went in, second or third, but he was, you know, he could run, was a good player. And a good kid. Most of his big league career is with Padres, right? Yeah, he played with the Padres. And, of course, he was from the Bay Area. His mother had a home that Roy bought him. Roy Shivers was a big-time running back for the Cardinals, for the St. Louis Cardinals football team. <clears throat> he played at um, Utah State for Tony Knapp. and was on Tony Knapp's coaching staff. And uh, that's how it opened up the door for me to get Leon. And he was a great kid. Did you have any regrets leaving UNLV for Pro Bowl? No. You had retired already and got your pension? No. Well, I had had a run-in with the president of the university, Carol Harbor. She came out of New York, a small university. She didn't know diddly poop. She didn't know if the ball was pumped or stuffed. And uh, she didn't know anything. I, I was pretty good at raising money on the side, you know, getting guys to make contributions so we could – at least get an air-conditioned bus so we wouldn't have to roll down the windows and tell the guy to go 60 miles an hour and get all the windows open so we get air in there, cool off. Got, uh, I raised uh, pretty good money. And then we got the money for the field. I'm trying to think of the guy, but that was a, that was a big gift. That, that was $6 million gift. Really? For the Barnson field? The field's named after the guy that gave the money. We got That's what we got the stadium for. We got $1.2 million we put into the stadium. And then Jim Weaver, the athletic director, who played at football at Penn State and then was at West Virginia or someplace, got to Nevada to be the athletic director. He takes the money and gives it to the College of Education, the money that was left, that we made the deal 
that the 6.2 would be part of baseball. So that's one time. Carol Harder, women's sports are coming on. They get this big push where women have to have all these full rides. So she's taking money. Out. She's going to take the money out of my baseball budget that I'd raised in, in, a, in our baseball program. And <clears throat> she said, I'm going to take your money. I'm giving it to the women. I said, you, you can't do that. I said, that money was earmarked for baseball. She goes, well, I think I my title says I'm the president of the university. I said, I'll tell you what. If that's the stand you want to take, I'm going public. Well, she said, help yourself. Well, I'll tell you what. The press ripped her for about two weeks. She called Cavagnero in there, the athletic director, and she said, hey, listen, whatever it takes to get that coach off this campus, it's either you do it and get it done, or he, he, he goes and you stay. If he stays, you go. Really? She said that to the AD. So she, yeah, she bought three. She bought three years of my retirement, which was a big sum out yeah. of her budget. That took me to a thirty-year retirement, so I could retire and draw it right away. <clears throat> then the Orioles contacted me through Rick Down with Davey Johnson. I was like the twenty-second guy that they interviewed for the job. They flew me back to Camden Yards. I met with Sid Thrift, the general manager. Uh, of, the, of the team and everything. The whole staff, uh, I forget the guy that was a running back for SC. He was on that same thing. He was a baseball guy too. We met. Gay offered me the contract. I said, uh, for your nine months, we'll offer you, we'll give you $42,000. A $42,000 contract. I thought, 42, nine months. It's not much money, coach. No. But it was a chance to get in a pro ball. And they said, uh, we'll assign you to be the AAA pitching coach at Rochester. Bing's Rick down, spoke highly of you. I see how many guys you've, you've worked with and play in the big leagues that were pitchers right now. And he says, um, we'll assign you to, uh, Rochester, New, to uh, Rochester, New York. One year in pro ball, we win the International League. We're having a big banquet that night. I look at him, everybody, and I said, uh, general manager of the big league team says, hey, Freddie, we could win this thing three or four more years in a row with you, Davey, Davey Cash, who played the big leagues for the Padres, great player, great guy, and Mark Foley being the manager. He said, we could win this thing three or four more years in a row with you guys coaching them. I said, well, you're going to have to do it without me. I'm not coming back. I'm going home. They go, what? I said, I'm going home. They said, but we just won the International League. They never called up one player all year to, to be playing the big leagues. We kept that same, you know, they either thought they were good enough or we didn't have the right talent. But we won the International League. So they said, well, what the, why are you going back home? I said, well, number one, you guys are screwed on my hunting and fishing. You know, I'm a hunting and fishing guy, so... I said, and besides, I didn't get married to that cute little blonde I'm married to to only see her two times in nine months. Yeah. And I said, I missed the first eight months of my first grandbaby's life. Can never get it back. So I said, I'm not coming back. And they sent me a contract for two years in a row after that to come back. I just, no, I wasn't going to do it. I had enough. I coached 33 years. And I've had a lot of great players. So. Still in contact with a lot of players. We're going to have a baseball reunion this weekend. 
on all the guys that played uh, and wore a Rebel uniform, that played on the championship teams, we're meeting in Vegas, and one of the boosters gave Stolte, Stan Stolte, the coach at UNLV right now, he gave him his box in Legion Stadium. Really? For the Raiders game? We're all meeting there for the Raiders game on Friday. That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to it. You'd be surprised how many guys this are, are coming. You get a free ticket if you want to bring your wife or anything. It, it costs you to bring her. Tickets are expensive going to a big league football game. NFL game, yeah. yeah. Especially that stadium. So we're going to go down and uh, we're going to have a we're going to have a get together. Is Alice going? Yep, I told flying. Her. Bryce not going to go. Bryce got to stay. Somebody's got to take care of Kimmy. No, can never live her alone. Is uh, are you flying or driving? I'm going to drive. I'm going to drive back with Alice, and then I'm going to fly back and leave her car there. Oh, we're we're going to stay. Might stay for Thanksgiving to be with Bryce, Kimmy, and the kids. That that's our goal right now. Uh, we're just hoping that Kimmy can hang on. We go to bed every night praying that the good Lord would take her, but uh, you know he's not ready for her yet. So, how's Brian handling it? Oh, he's been great. He just uh, he doesn't want anybody else taking care of her, but Allison, my wife, his mom. So it's twenty four hour around the clock taking care of her. She lost her motor skills. She's totally immobilized, paralyzed on one side. Uh, she can stand up a little bit with you helping her. And that's it. Uh, her speech is getting sort of where she can't talk. Fuck. Does she recognize the kids? Oh, yeah. She recognizes everybody. She knows her mind's her mind works. But when you have a tumor on the frontal lobe of your brain, that's your walking, your speech, your vision, uh, your motor skill, all, all that comes out of your frontal lobe. And so that's where the tumor was, and that's where it's still spreaded, spreading. And uh, it's been uh, almost two years. So we've had her another 18 months. And right now she's bedridden. Uh, she, she's got to be transported, you know, to and from the couch to the bed. Uh, it's it's rough. It's a tough, tough situation for Bri. God but uh, he's, he's going to do it. He's going to take care of her. And uh, we don't know if she could hang on for another couple months. If that's it, we'll have Christmas with her. But now would be a good time for us to go down and have uh, Thanksgiving with Brian, Kimmy, and and the, and the kids, and whoever comes down from her family in Idaho. And uh, you know they were Vegas people, and they moved to Idaho. Kimmy, and Brian have never left Vegas. They were born and raised in Vegas. They had all their kids in Vegas, uh, and all their kids turned out great. Brian left for college. He went to Palo Alto to play for the Cardinals in Stanford, and then he was drafted in what round to the Giants? You know, well, Brian got drafted out of high school by the Marlins. He turned down the offer because he had an offer to go to Stanford. And at Stanford, he got drafted. One other team, I forget who it was right now. Might have been Milwaukee or somebody. He got drafted. Uh, it, it, it skips my mind right now. But Marquez met with him and he said, if you come back, Brian, your mom and dad will not have to pay a dime for you to go to Stanford. So he was on scholarship, wasn't getting everything taken care of. But the last year, they said, if you turn down your offer, you come play your senior year. He ended up going to the College World Series. Yeah. You know, he got to play in the College World Series, came back. They got beat. They finished like fourth in the College World Series. <clears throat> came back, had a good career at, uh, at Stanford. 
We played on the U.S. Olympic team. Uh, they traveled to China, Japan, uh, and uh, we were going back to watch them play in the Olympics. But then when Skip Bourbon won the NC2A collegiate title and was also the Olympic coach, he wanted his second baseman and shortstop. So that took Bry out of the picture. He was at LSU still then? Yeah. And so Bry didn't uh, – he, he, he called and said, hey, I'll be flying in. Pick me up at the airport. And uh, he said, I'll get a hold of the scouts and we'll we'll meet with uh, – he played for the Diamondbacks. He played for the Giants. There's one other team in there I'm missing. We played nine years of pro- professional baseball. Awesome. His first hit in the major leagues was a grand slam. Yeah, but he also he also won the silver bat for the Pacific Coast League. He led the Coast League in hitting his last year in the Coast League. Wow, he had a he had a good baseball career. Yeah, he did. He's got, a I think he stud. got fifty six abs in the big leagues. He hit two fifty six. I think he said. I would have thought that he would have been coacher. I thought he would have got into coaching too. He's going to get into coaching. It's the right guy gets the job. I like my. Dad. This was my dad's favorite story. We're playing Arizona State, and they're ranked one or two in the country. And he said, we're back home having a couple of beers. And he goes, hey, son, he says, you're going to have to find a way to go out and get some thoroughbreds. He said, you're not going to win them with those donkeys and jackasses that you got. <laughs> <laughs> not knowing how tough it was to get those big, big league guys. Yeah, we did pretty good for. I never got a for. I, I don't think we ever got a guy inside the tenth round that was ever drafted out of high school. Never, but we worked hard. I think we had a. I had a good coaching staff. Uh, I knew pitching uh, very well. Rick Down knew hitting. Rod Sosby knew hitting and infield play. Uh, Roger Farrell came on and coached a couple of years from Valley High School. He had the Maddox brothers. He had a lot of a lot of great people, and. Uh, Catcher for Boston, I forget his name now. Veritek. No, before. Catcher. I, I enjoyed all the years I coached. I enjoyed it. We were a low-budget program. We were low salaries. you have any regrets? We'll end this by talking. This is Coach Fred Dallimore. He was my college baseball coach for the Hustling Rebels at UNLV. Everybody knows him for what he called me, the biggest recruiting mistake that he ever made. I didn't really bring that up because a lot of people have heard it. This listening audience hasn't. But, yeah, that's what he called me. It's in the, the showcase. The, yeah, it's in the shadow box. The biggest recruiting mistake that Fred Dallimore ever made was yours truly. Don't believe that, though. The freaking scholarship I got was intended for somebody else. <laughs> but, hey, it's all written down on the jersey now. I have it as proof to go into my museum someday. Any regrets? Would you do anything different in your career? I look to the program that I inherited. We played on the old baseball field down by the museum, down by the dorms. It was just one big piece of grass on the campus. We had baseball in the southwest corner. We had track in the northeast corner. And we had one other uh, soccer. It was the only piece of grass on campus. And we had spring football, spring football. We put up a portable fence all the way around the field. The infield was rougher than a cob. I mean, uh, there was not ever a good hop. Every hop was bad. And uh, my first year in coaching, I was 19 and 34. Won 19. Got the job in August. The AD says, Freddie, 
go out and work your butt off and recruit. Well, in August, everybody's ready to get ready to go to college. They're gone. They already agreed. So I get in a state car, I drive up to Oregon, and I get six, five or six kids out of the Oregon State American Legion tournament, and a couple with a couple guys from McNutt that we had here and, and stuff, and uh, <clears throat> go to work. I was a one-man coach. Then I had a volunteer, Jerry Ganichi, Mr. Baseball in Las Vegas for years. And uh, then we, we got uh, got the program going. We got the PE complex, and it came with just the field, no lights, and uh, 500 seats right behind it and the, the little press box up top. But I got the program, and I look at where we took it. When I left, we had 3,300 individual theater seats. We got a, a grand entrance going into the stadium, circular entrance going up. We got uh, better concessions. Uh, got a big time scoreboard. We got lights. So I, I mean, I looked to where I took it. I think I. It was time for me to move on, and uh, it was work. It was it was a workers' program. It was a body of work that you laid down for. You had twenty seven years, paid for thirty, went to Pro Bowl. 30 had years. a kid in the show. I'm drawing a 30-year state retirement. Kid played in the show. His first A.B. was a grand slam for the San Francisco Giants. You have wonderful grandbabies. Still married to your sweetheart, Alice, and she's she's like 15 or 20 years younger than you, if I, if I remember <laughs> yeah, right. But, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, we've been married almost 58 years. 57 years, almost 58. Congratulations, Coach D. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Go ahead. Grandson. Got one grandson coming up. It's going to be a big-time player. First-round draft pick. I can't wait to see him Brady in the show. Delamore. Palo Verde High School in Las Vegas, Nevada. 6'4", 220 as a junior with a cannon of an arm. Cannon. Was I one of the fastest yeah. players? Am I one, am I, was I one of the fastest players you ever had in your program? Yeah, I look back now. We, I, I shouldn't have listened to my assistant coaches. They said, <laughs> we don't think that guy's ever going to be a big-time player. But he could. you could run. You found a way to get – hell, how'd you get on base in high school? I mean, you know. <laughs> All the time, every A-B. Yeah, I mean, uh, but my, some of my assistant coaches said, well, no, we need to get uh, – with one of my assistant coaches going to Colorado, I thought, well, here, Reed, you take two guys. Kansas. Kansas, wherever it was. I said, you take them, have them for a year, and I'll, I'll bring them back. Well, you got who, – who recruited you? A lot of people. I know, but where'd you go? University of Missouri, St. Louis, D two school. I was a D two player, but I was an All American that year. I was in top ten in hitting in Reed's team for Colby, Kansas, yeah. in junior college that year in the country. Yeah. So I had a good I had a good year with him, <clears throat> but again, baseball to me was more. I learned so much through the game and through relationships with guys like you, <clears throat> you know, and just. I mean, Stacy Kleiner was texting me last week, you know, from Vegas, sending me pictures of his kids, and I was sending him pictures of Alyssa. And, you know, I don't stay in touch with a lot of them, but a lot of the things that I learned in life were because of those those experiences, you know. Well, I think that's one of the most uh, rewarding things. Uh, at Christmas time, uh, you know, through my 27 years at UNLV and uh, all the great kids we had that came through the program, we don't only get a Christmas card with a picture of their family and just the name on the bottom. All of them include a one solid page letter. One solid page? Yeah, thank you for what you, you know, 
at the time, I didn't realize what you were trying to teach us as far as what life is going to be like and how you're preparing us to, for the next level that you move to, marriage, kids, uh, your job. Uh, uh, any, anything that we taught, I think, in Rebel Baseball, you know, was character traits, honesty, you know, work hard. Before you even open your mouth, somebody can look at you and say, they'll evaluate you. It's an expression of yourself, your appearance. You know, how you appear and people see you, that's usually their first judgment. Yep. And uh, it's very important. I think uh, I look at the kids we recruited all over the country, uh, you know, in the Midwest, in St. Louis. Uh, just We had great kids. We had great kids. And we had, uh, we didn't have a lot of drafted kids to work with, but we had a lot of borderline kids that should have been drafted that got drafted after they came and played for us. Stacy Kleiner's one. Yeah. You know, there, I know a, a lot of them. There's a prime example. I mean, uh, the baseball field, I think I honestly took it probably as far as I was going to take it with the administration that they had that was going to squeeze the non-revenue sports and put it into women's. And uh, I can remember when Title IX came through and uh, hell, I always prayed that their Title IX would come back. Title Ten would come into effect. That's where they take all that damn money back and they give it to the sports that deserve it, and not all those ladies. But that's hard for you because you have a daughter. No, it's true. I mean, I get it. I mean, there's I have different feelings about it, but I mean, it is what it is. If it's nothing's fair in life, you know. Of course, I want my daughter to have every opportunity that she gets, but you know, nothing's handed to you. If you get a chance, if you're if you have a chance to go to the college world series and build a strong program and, and raise money and make money for that university, then you have to have more resources. And, and a lot of that was taken away with that, with the titles that you're talking about, but yeah, we've overcome it now because of the television contracts with football and basketball and even, even college baseball uh, is a, is a big draw right now in, in collegiate sports. But, you know, as, as I reflect back on my life, coming from a, you know, we we were raised in a mining camp. You know, we were born. We were my family were hard rock miners, and and uh, out, out between Pyramid Lake and Wadsworth, a place called Ollinghouse Canyon. Uh, and when my sister got old, old enough to go to school, she already missed kindergarten and was going to go to the first grade. My mom said, "Johnny, well, I got to get these kids into school." So my dad bought a house over by the VA hospital in Reno, in a poor part of town, and. Uh, my mother and dad got a divorce after 10 years being married. My dad raised all five kids by himself. Wow. So, I, I, you know, uh, I was fortunate to have a loving dad, a guy that uh, knew baseball, and he was tough. We're riding home one night in the, in the truck, and I, I'm sitting there. My dad's not saying a word. I'm quiet. And he goes, damn it. I go, what's the matter, dad? He goes, if you had just been a little tougher, he goes, we'd have been riding home, he said, joyfully having a good conversation about throwing a no-hitter, a no-hit, no-run. He said, but you gave up a hit. He said, you got to be tougher. you got to be tougher. <laughs> got to be. Johnny Dallimore. Yeah, Johnny D. He was a great – Well, thanks, Coach. Great father, a good baseball guy. You said this was your last, your last podcast. I don't think so. Yeah, Johnny D. I mean, there was the, his growing up. I'd hear stories about your dad all the time. Well, he's a, he was tough. He expected a lot, but he was fair, just like you were. They call him the hobo catcher. He the, was. He played softball, 
they called him the Reno backstop. Every, every team wanted him when they would go play for a state tournament. And if his team didn't go, he was the catcher. He was, he was just a I – I got pictures of him. I'll show you one day. They're in a mining camp. I got three cousins that are older than I am. They're seven or eight years older than I am. My dad's got all three kids sitting on the dirt, and he's got the baseball gloves. That's the days when the baseball gloves were flat. They were flat, pancakes. Yeah. And they all got their little beanie hats on, and, and uh, they all got their little gloves on. And my dad's rolling balls to them, and they're sitting in a little circle. It was, it was priceless. It's, it's, it's in his scrapbook. Yeah, I'd like to see that. My sister's got it, and I'll get it. And let, uh, I'll bring it one time for us. That's Fred Dallimore. We'll have him back on. We got to have you back on, Coach D. We got to hear the stories, more stories. I want more umpire stories. This has been This Life Ain't For Everybody, the Jack Daniels single barrel program. I'm proud of it. The single barrel proof rye, unbelievable. It's probably my favorite. The Jack Daniels single barrel select. The single barrel rye, if you don't want such high potency or high proof, you don't have to go to the barrel proof. The Jack Daniels single barrel proof. Oh, man, the gold label. I want everybody to look into the Jack Daniels single barrel program. I'm proud to be associated with it. Lots of options, whiskey tastings, barrel tastings. Go down to Lynchburg, Tennessee, visit the Jack Daniels family. Pick your taste, your flavor. And you become the proud owner of the entire barrel. You get the barrel head. You get a really nice decanter set. And then every bottle of whiskey that is bottled out of that barrel, whether it's the rye, the barrel proof, the single barrel select, you get every bottle with your own name tag engraved, your logo, your company logo, your family name, the year on there. You can give them away as gifts. Thank you tokens. It's the single barrel program from our friends at Jack Daniels, Lynchburg, Tennessee. Learn more about it at jackdaniels.com. For Coach Fred Dallimore, I'm Chad Belding. Thank you to Jack Daniels. Enjoy it responsibly. Never allow underage drinking. We'll be back at you with another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Appreciate y'all being here. Talk to you soon. Coach Fred Dallimore embraced the criticism and built a legacy from it. We're playing Arizona State. They're ranked one or two in the country. And he said, you're going to have to find a way to go out and get some thoroughbreds. You're not going to win them with those donkeys and jackasses that you got. (laughs) Chad Belding and Coach Fred Dallimore will be back with an extra inning after the break. Make sure you listen to every episode of Jack Daniels Presents This Life Ain't For Everybody on SoundCloud, iHeart, Spotify, This Life lifeainforeverybody.com or on your preferred streaming platform. Stick around. Have you heard of the fun button? Flask Cap has reinvented the way we use tumbler cups. Everybody's got a tumbler cup. Come on, let's admit it. This tumbler cup is different. The Matic lid is different. The six, the nine. Nobody wants glass in their boat. Nobody wants glass anywhere because of what can go wrong. If you go into your buddy's boat and glass breaks, that's a no-no. So you got your mixers in the cool. You might have a two liter of Coca-Cola, classic Coke Zero. You might have some club soda in a plastic bottle or a can, stuff that doesn't break and get glass that's nasty and will cut your feet up like no tomorrow. The flask cap allows you to store your spirits, your Jack Daniels in that Matic lid. 
And with one touch of that fun button, it disperses a shot into your mixer down there with your ice, your Coke, whatever it is. You can have vodka, you can have gin, you can have tequila. We choose Jack Daniels Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey and you have your cocktail for the day. Remember to enjoy it in moderation. Never allow underage drinking. Be safe. But Flask Cap supports the culture of the American outdoorsman, the American outdoor enthusiast. And they keep it safe, they keep it ethical, and they keep it fun. The entire brand, the culture, the messaging is exactly what we're all about here at The Foul Life. We're proud and honored to be teamed up with Flask Cap. Check them out at Flaskap, F-L-A-S-K-A-P.com. And you are going to be so happy and take pride. Get your name on it. Get your logo engraved on it. Again, it's all about moderation. It's all about safety. Be careful with that fun button. One is enough. Two can be a lot of fun. Three is way too many. But you're going to keep that glass out of the boat, off of those beaches, and you're going to have a blast consuming alcohol through the Flask Cap. Again, thank you for supporting Flask Cap. I'm Chad Belding with the Foul Life Podcast and the Foul Life Television. Thank you all very much. We travel a lot. We're up and down America's highways, byways, thoroughways, cornfields, dirt roads, back roads, country roads. Love seeing that dust in our rear view. Love looking over and seeing the sunset, the sunrise, mallard ducks pitching in to a pond in Kansas, a coyote howling in Wyoming, an antelope standing on the side of the road in Nevada. We get to do this all through Ford trucks. Corning Ford, Paul. Francis, the entire crew, the customer service, the service department, the selection, the dedication to excellence and quality, the number one Ford Super Duty dealer in the West United States five years in a row. They're in the top 10 in the country and they're in a little tiny town, Corning, California. 5,000 people deep maybe, but the construction, the farming, the ranching, the almonds, the walnuts, the olives, the duck hunting, the fishing, the deer hunting and turkey hunting, predator hunting, you name it. Corning Ford is part of it. They support our lifestyle, their pricing. They refuse to mark them up. Give them a try. They'll deliver your truck anywhere in the country. They've delivered them to Alaska, Florida, so many to Nevada, so many to Northern California, all over Arizona and Colorado. They've delivered three to Tennessee. They delivered one to Minnesota to our friend Andrew at Wild Acre Kennels. It's Corning Ford. They support the outdoors, and there's nothing better than a Ford truck. These 2023 Ford Super Duties, F-250s, F-350s, the long bed, the short bed, the tremor package. Watch your speed. Set that cruise control because sometimes you'll look down and be like, I'm not going that fast. Something's got to be broken. And you're pulling a trailer, and you got a leered topper on the back of it. The bed of your truck is full. They're meant for hauling. They're meant for towing. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Paul. There's nowhere better in the country to buy your next Ford vehicle or Ford Super Duty truck than Corning Ford. Thank you all for supporting them. We've had the provider mentality for a long time. Growing up and watching dad and mom cook wild game, whether it was an Italian lasagna or a spaghetti, I watched in awe and I couldn't wait to be old enough to do it. Then we got to travel and meet all of these different chefs at all these different lodges in Argentina and Uruguay or Paraguay or Arkansas or Missouri or Chef Mark Lindsay who you hear on the podcast, This Life Ain't For Everybody, a lot up in Minnesota at Trapper's Landing, part of the Reed's family of brands. And I started to learn so many different unorthodox, out-of-the-box ways of preparing Mr. Billy Bogey smothered deer steak at Prairie Wings Duck Club in Arkansas or the duck empanadas at Duck Guides of Argentina. And they all became part of the provider cookbook, the provider mentality at theproviderlife.com, our rubs, our original 10 in the ultimate pack, including the swine and the flaky, the spawn, the drop time, the foul, the crosshairs, the brit, 
the dragon, the Sonora. Then we introduced the brand beef rub and the mother cluck and chicken rub. And you can find recipes at theproviderlife.com. Check out the Provider TV on the My Outdoor TV app, Mo TV, part of the Outdoor Sportsman's Group and the Outdoor Channel family of brands. We got more coming. We got so much more coming. Good luck out in the field. Good luck out on the rivers. I hope you get those wild turkey nuggets and that pickle juice right away and get ready to throw down with some different rubs on them. The Provider Lifestyle. We're so honored to live it. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be outdoorsmen, hunter, gatherers, conservationists, and providers. Again, theproviderlife.com. Thank you for visiting. Thanks for listening to the first ever shutout in broadcast history. That's Fred Dalmore. We'll have him back on. We got to have you back on, Coach D. We got to hear the stories, more stories. I want more umpire stories. This has been This Life Ain't For Everybody. To hear more of Jack Daniels Presents This Life Ain't For Everybody, make sure you follow them on their socials and be sure to listen daily on SoundCloud, iHeart, Spotify, thislifeaintforeverybody.com or on the streaming platform of your choice. And here's to Coach Fred Dalmore for his unwavering leadership and his constant encouragement and motivation to help all of those around him achieve excellence in everything they do. God bless you, Coach Dalimore. You're a true man among men.